It's time for The Outspoken Cyclist, your weekly conversation about bicycles, cyclists, trails, travel, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. You can subscribe to our weekly podcast at OutspokenCyclist.com or through your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. and welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you had a great holiday, whether it was Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Festivus, or just staying in and enjoying some downtime. Certainly here in Northeast Ohio, we didn't have a lot of choice with below zero temperatures, wicked winds, and blowing snow. Despite the weather, Sometimes it's really nice to be living in one of those states that is doing something really right for cycling. Ohio happens to be one of them. My first guest today is Jen Hamelman. She's the program director for the USBRS, the United States Bicycle Route System. We've spoken with Jen in the past, and I wanted to wrap up 2022's USBRS progress. It turns out that Ohio has done some really cool things to make traveling through the state by bike both safer and easier to follow. After we speak with Jen, we'll talk with author and cybersecurity specialist Patrick Greenwood. Patrick has taken his lifelong interest in the fall of Saigon and what happened in 1975 and incorporated it into a historical fictional story he wrote from what he knew growing up in the 70s and what he experienced as he rode his bicycle through Vietnam and on to Cambodia in 2012. So as I said at the beginning of the show, Ohio is doing some good stuff when it comes to the U.S. bicycle route system. And other states are jumping on board as the USBRS gathers pedal power across the country. Program Director Jen Hamelman fills us in on where it's all going. Hi, Jen. Welcome back to The Outspoken Cyclist. It's great to talk with you. So much is happening with the USBRS, the United States Bicycle Route System, and you are the person who knows all about it. So let's close out 2022 and see what's happened this year and what's on the agenda for next year. Well, um, thank you, first of all, for welcoming me back. It's great to be chatting with you about this. Uh, 2022 has been a great year for uh, the USBRS. We've added some new states, new routes. Um, This latest cycle was one new state, two new routes, a handful of realignments um, totaling more than 400 miles. And um, so this brings us to within less than 50 miles of reaching that 19,000 mile mark. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. We're really pleased with that. 19,000 miles. Boy, you could take a long time riding your bike to go through all of that. (laughs) You sure could. You sure could. So I know that, and one of the things my husband and I were just talking about this, are some of the routes in Ohio needed to be changed and they were changed. What constitutes a, a reason for ACA or the USBRS to say, yeah, you're right, let's make a change. And does that also change signage and everything else? Well, it actually, the change will bubble up from um, local communities oftentimes, and it has to go through the state DOT. So the Ohio State DOT um, works with the local communities to, uh, you know, when infrastructure improvements are made, then oftentimes that will trigger 
a realignment. And so then the DOT applies to AASHTO to make those changes. So Ohio did have some changes. I think we're out 50. Is that our designation? That it's yeah. 50 that goes through our state? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, five different routes in Ohio were affected in this latest cycle. So yeah, it's pretty amazing. That is amazing. Well, I know Ohio is a, it's so interesting. It seems like nothing's going on here until you start looking at the, in the weeds at, mm-hmm. and how many people own bikes and ride bikes. And then the system, it, you know, these five routes, that's really awesome. What's, what is happening? Okay. Now everything's happening in Arkansas. I don't understand <laughs> why Arkansas has suddenly become the like center of the universe for cycling, but there's a lot going on in Arkansas and Tennessee for you, for you guys. Yes. Um, Arkansas that, that, um, and I forget what the region is called, but there is a region that's around uh, little rock that is really a hotbed for cycling, um, both on and off-road cycling. So we were really excited to see Arkansas DOT uh, embrace the USBRS uh, around Little Rock. They have a wonderful trail system, and uh, we look forward to working with them to continue the route farther. Currently, uh, the route is uh, in the eastern section from Little Rock east to the border of the, um, the, of the state. Um, and you know we're not quite sure what their plan is, but we we assume that eventually they will designate that western section as well to the other side of the state so that it can connect to the Oklahoma border and eventually reach up with Oklahoma's USBR 66 designation. So because that is definitely one of the features of the USBRS is to have these interconnected routes so that you always have someplace else to go and explore. Let me reintroduce you. We're speaking with Jen Hamelman. She is the, I guess you're the director of the U.S. Bicycle Route System. Was that the right? Officially, I'm the USBR's program manager, so. Program manager. Anyway, if you want to know anything about this system, she to man, as they say. (laughs) So uh, I know that Bentonville, which is kind of, I guess, in the northern western part of the state, is, mm-hmm. you know, so much is going on there. Walmart, of course, and the grandsons yeah. of Sam Walton mm-hmm. have really taken on a lot of responsibility for cycling. So mm-hmm. will that route go that way then? It'll end up through Fayetteville and Bentonville and all of those areas? I think there is another route that actually will do that. Um, I think 80 is more of a straight across uh, and uh, I think 51 is the potential route that would that would in, encompass Bentonville and Fayetteville. Yeah. How many people are already using the route and the mapping system to travel from state to state at, safely? Because that's one of the the really features highlights of this route is that it's so much safer than almost anything else out there for cyclists. Yeah, that is a really fabulous question that we would like to know a little bit more about, honestly, Um, because these maps are distributed freely through a digital platform called Ride With GPS. We don't know exactly how many people are riding these routes. When a DOT asks us, perhaps, you know, so how will this increase the number of cyclists on, on, on our roadways? 
we kind of have to base it on adventure cycling route numbers because we have maps that we sell. And so from there, we sort of make some educated guesses about how many people might be um, using using these, these, these routes. And in a riding cycle or a summer, say a season, you've got about three months. And in that time at Adventure Cycling Offices, we can see up to a thousand cyclists come through in that three months. But when you spread that out over 90 days, it really is only an additional uh, three to five cyclists, maybe per day traveling, you know, in a specific location. So it's a it's sort of a trickle, but it's one of those steady water on rock trickles, right? So that little bit of extra visibility of having cyclists on the road is really great for increasing safety um, because the more motorists see cyclists on the road, the more they learn to become aware of them and to do what they need to do so that everybody stays safe out there. So definitely we would love to know what those numbers are. And at this point in time, we just don't have as clear of a picture as we might like. Let's talk a second about signage. So the routes are signed. Some routes are signed. We actually, um, uh, signing is not a requirement for the USBRS. Interesting. Ohio happens to be a state that has signage um, high on its list of priorities, though. And um, let's see, my understanding is that they have some signage coming up here. Actually, I took notes on this for you and everything. (laughs) Let's see, USBR 21 is slated to be signed in stages sort of via local trail projects and local networks. And then the hope is to have USBR 30 and 25 signed by May of 2024. So that'll be something to celebrate in bike month of 2024. That brings me to a question about the collaboration among cycling entities like IMBA, ACA, maybe even USA Cycling, how how do you work with or do you work with some of the other entities to choose routes and to get them funded? Because this is not, I mean, somebody has to pay for signage. Somebody has to pay for all of the digital stuff that goes up to ride with GPS. How mm-hmm. is that all happening? Oftentimes we write a uh, letter, we write lots of letters of support for different projects when uh, groups come to us and say they're applying for particular grants or other federal funding that's available, which has um, that number has definitely increased for active transportation here in the last year. And so we've our number of letters of support have gone up and I've actually written a few of them for Ohio DOT in particular. Um, they're very, very good at, at, at sussing out those opportunities, and um, we are happy to support those kinds of efforts. That's a very, that's a very much a no-brainer sort of um, ask for us. Uh, we also work a little bit with the Rails to Trails Conservancy. We've been working with them a bit on the Great American Rail Trail Project, um, which is really exciting to see, as there are folks that are already wanting to get out there and ride that route, even though it's not fully complete. It's it's exciting. It's exciting to see the partnership between the organizations, even though, you know, we have maybe slightly different uh, philosophies on how routing 
is it best serves cyclists. And um, that's all okay, because there are a lot of cyclists out there that have some different needs. And certainly we want to see anybody who's interested in getting on a bike, we want to support them to do that in a way that's comfortable and safe for them. Yes, we do. Let's talk a second about the maps. So are they only available digitally? Yes, the routes are only available digitally. Um, Like I said, they're with the Ride With GPS interface. So you can use their app, or if you have another favorite navigation app that will accept GPS tracks, you can get that from that interface. Um, They're all available for free on our our website at adventurecycling.org slash USBRS maps, all one word. So what is coming up on your uh, sort of cross-country board for 2023 that we haven't actually spoken about either in the past or today? Well, we're just starting to get a picture of what could happen in 2023. Uh, The next deadline for applications will probably be in April. So we're starting to work with some DOTs on figuring out how to close some loops and uh, get those applications completed to across the finish line. I'm a little bit of a superstitious person and I I don't like to say anything too specific um, until I actually have those applications in hand. But I am fully confident we are going to cross that 19,000 mile mark. And I anticipate we could hit 20,000 in in 2024, which would, or 2023, which would be um, really a great milestone to be able to celebrate that. Oh, yeah. Another thousand plus miles. That would be awesome. Yeah. What is the um, final goal if there is one? Because, of course, new routes can come online at any time. But Mm -hmm. do you have a, a long-term picture of what it should be? Yeah. Yeah. We um, envision that when this network is quote complete, it'll number around 50,000 miles. So, and in comparison, the adventure cycling route network is at around 55,000 miles. And that, that was a very slow, deliberate process. I mean, think about the age of the adventure cycling um, association and how we got to that 55,000. And honestly, the USBRS is on a, on a faster track in a lot of ways that we already have almost 19,000 miles and it's a much younger system. So um, the potential is definitely there. Well, I'm excited to see what happens. We've been speaking with Jen Hamelman. She is the program director for the U.S. Bicycle Route System. You can access it at adventurecycling.org forward slash USBRS. Always wonderful to talk with you. And uh, I'm hoping that we get to talk again next year and that we've passed that 19,000 mile mark. So I hope you have a wonderful holiday and thanks for filling us in for the end of 2022. You bet, Diane. Thank you so much for inviting me. I always enjoy our conversations. Take care. Have a great holiday. You bet. Jen Hamelman is the program director for the USBRS. We will post all of the links to the Ride GPS maps as well as to Adventure Cycling on our site, OutspokenCyclist.com, or you can go directly to RideWithGPS.org to download maps. Let's take a break. And when we return, we'll speak with Patrick Greenwood about his new book, Sunrise in Saigon. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist.
We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm Diane Jenks. Patrick Greenwood's passion for Vietnam and the events that happened in 1975 and beyond inspired his new book, Sunrise in Saigon. The story follows Jack Kendall, who is struggling with a failing marriage and poor health as he embarks on a journey to meet a beautiful Vietnamese woman, as well as find out what happened to the lost U.S. Embassy and the Catholic nuns who helped with Operation Babylift. What Jack finds is so much more. Hello, Patrick. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guest today. How are you? Oh, thank you very much for having me, Dan. Great to meet you as well. Well, we're going to talk about a new book that you wrote, and I'm really excited uh, because we don't get many novels in the bicycle world. You know, people <laughs> write about a certain rider or they might uh, write about a certain uh, period of history in cycling, but a novel with cycling. That's so cool. And I want to start with a question that was first posed in the forward of your book. Now, the book is titled Sunrise in Saigon, and in the forward, it, it asks a very poignant question. What makes one's journey worthwhile? So tell me about your journey. What was the journey getting up to and then beginning to write and then finishing this book? Well, as you can tell in the book itself, you know, being Sunrise in Saigon, you know, the first inclination people have by looking at the titles go, oh, it must be about the war. It's like, no, <laughs> not really. <laughs> it's not a very little to do with the war itself. But it does have to do with the, it did start out, um, you know, in the book as the main character, Jack Kendall, when he was 11, and he remembers listening on the radio the fall of Saigon in 75. And he was very intrigued at the time when he was 11 going, what's this war about? You know, where, where did it start? Why are we leaving? You know, what's really the whole thing behind it? So in 2012, in, in real life, actually, in 2012, I got the chance to go to Saigon and cycle around the country. Um, so a lot of the book is, is a mix of some fictional, obviously fictional story writing and then some nonfictional events. But I did have a chance in 2012 to go to Vietnam, cycle all through Ho Chi Minh City and the Mekong and all the way to Cambodia and back. Um, and a lot of it was what I saw or observed during my cycling uh, event as well. But the journey was really a, a something that Jack had in his heart since he was very little. What is the country about? Why are all these refugees coming here? Why are these soldiers coming back? And why is everyone in such dismay? And, you know, he kind of spent a pretty much of his adult lifetime, you know, really wanting to go to Vietnam at some point. And he finally reached kind of a critical breaking point in his life. He says, look, I've got to take this journey. I've got to go there. I have to just see what's been yearning in my heart this whole time. And, and he had multiple reasons to go, right? He had, he wanted to go discover, you know, the, the country. He wanted to go find the missing embassy. He wanted to find the Catholic nuns that helped out in Operation Babylift. He also met, you know, a person online that he wanted to go meet, you know, as well. So he had kind of multiple reasons to make that trip, and he did. Um, and the book really, from a fictional perspective, really takes the, the life of, he made the choice to make that journey, but he knew he had to live with the consequences of doing it but he still knew he had to take that journey. He did indeed. And he did take that journey. So what was it about the Vietnam War? I mean, it's not exactly your era. It is my era. And I certainly remember almost from day one, but that became the focus of your interest for this book. So what the thing for me, you know, again, I was 11 years old, obviously when the war ended. So I was still coming up in age. But I was, I was living in the Northern Virginia area at the time. So we had a lot of Vietnamese refugees coming into Northern Virginia. We had a lot of soldiers coming back, you know, and, and obviously there was a lot of protests, you know, in, our, in the universities around our area as well. So growing up in the early 70s, we had obviously the, you know, the 72 Olympics. We had Munich. 
you know, we then had 73, then we had the Entebbe, you know, uh, hijacking in 74, then you had Watergate, then you had Nixon, then you had the end of the war, then you had Carter, then you had the Iran-Contra. So we, Iran, you know, the Iran hostage thing. So the 70s was a very turbulent time, but growing up as 11, becoming 12, and then eventually when I entered the military in the 80s, I was seeing a lot of guys that were still in the military, the Marine Corps, that were in Vietnam. So I got to meet colonels and captains and sergeant majors that were corporals in Vietnam. And they would talk about the stories of what Saigon really was like, or, you know, fighting against the North Vietnamese or running up against the Cubans or the Chinese and the Russians is like, what? You ran up against the Russians? It's like, whoa, that never made it to the Washington Post or the New York Times. So, so there was so much back intrigue to that. But what really was the real turner for both in Jack and his life was the fact that he kept meeting Vietnamese people that were incredibly wonderful. They weren't harsh. They weren't regretful they weren't you know like resentful they came to this country that were very like thank you they're going to school they become educated they they become part of society and it really intrigued jack for for years going these people should be the most bitter people on the planet and yet they're not so that was a big part of kind of the the 15 20 year span that led up to 2012 was the yearning of going what is it about this country what is it about these people? They're, they're all growing up to becoming software engineers. They're all working at Microsoft. They're all working in these places. And, and it's just an incredible you know, desire to want to understand you know, what really drives them. And then more importantly, why did the Catholic lens not get out after the baby lift operation? Why did they not get out when the planes were coming in? Why did they choose to stay? And that was another big kind of, kind of compelling desire as well to try to understand what was so compelling about this country. So let me take a moment to reintroduce you, and we'll keep going with this really fascinating story. We're speaking with Patrick Greenwood. He has a book, a new book, just published, Sunrise in Saigon. It is by uh, published by Austin McCulley, and we will tell you how to get a copy at the end of our conversation today. You know, I... I was young, obviously, but not that young. I wasn't quite <laughs> as young as you during the Vietnam era. And I didn't have the same kind of focus like I do today on what's happening politically. Do you see, and this is a little off topic from what we were going to talk about, are you seeing any similarity between these the 70s and what's going on today? Very much so. We did not learn the lesson of the Vietnam War when we went into Iraq. We did not learn it when we went into Afghanistan. We still have not learned it today in Syria and Libya and all around the world where we've gone in and gone into places thinking that we're going to make some difference without understanding the history, the culture, and, and really what is behind the people. And Vietnam should have been a very, very much of a wake-up call and a blueprint for future of how we choose to engage in other countries' business. And, you know, tragically, we lost 57,000 soldiers in Vietnam in 10 years. However, they lost 3 million people. So when you put in perspective of how we suffered and how our soldiers and our, our country went through such a turbulent time, Vietnam went through even more so. And not only did they have to face the you know, onslaught of us, but they had to deal with the Chinese in 78. They had to deal with, you know, the Cambodians in the 80s and the Khmer Rouge. So when you really put in perspective what happens today and you hear about soldiers coming back from Afghanistan that have done five tours, six tours, and, and how they're having difficulty coping society. And we still haven't figured out how to work with our veterans and helping them become part of society again. It's really sad to see that it's the same music playing off in the 70s. And everything still is very politicalized, right? It's simple. Take care of your soldiers. Take care of the people that you know sacrifice for the good of the country, regardless of what political you know form they're from. And we still haven't learned that lesson. So I do see a lot of parallels today. I do see a lot of 
political decisions driving military decisions sounds again just like the vietnam war it, it became a political statement versus it being a military statement and if we think so hard about it it's sad to see the destruction that is caused and then the, the wake of refugees and things that are happening in the world and then now of course the economies of global economies are now so interlinked that you can't afford to have a war anymore like they used to so yeah i, I definitely see a lot of parallels which is sad so let's get back to the book um sunrise in Sagan. Give us just sort of like a little bit about how the story unfolds. Make it intriguing enough so people just want to read it, but don't tell them anything they shouldn't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, again, kind of going back to your comment about the 70s, right? It really kind of started with, you know, the book itself really picks up upon a man's journey wanting to say, look, I'm really at the tail end of life. You know, my health, everything around him is really kind of collapsing, you know, and he really needs to say, look, I've got it. I got to do something to be able to become better. And having that, and a lot of people have that that journey, that desire within them to say, I've got to go do this. So he did. He got on a plane. He says, you know what? I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go to a far off country and never been. I've always wanted to go. I'm going to cycle and just see kind of what life presents. And one of the really nice things about the story is it has very little to do with the war, <laughs> but it has to do with the romance between him and a younger lady that really have come together in a very brief moment of time and have a, a bit of a relationship together. But what happens at the relationship level is, and that's sort of kind of the, the book's real secret is the cover, right? When people see the cover, they're like, well, there's no war. This is Saigon. I go, no, no, it's a river. And what the two loving couple realized was that there's always going to be a river between them. There's never going to be a bridge. There's never going to be a sandbar. There's never going to be more than just a river. So one of the really kind of compelling romantic parts of the story is that they realize that there's going to be this river. They're never going to have a chance to be together again, other than that morning on 12-12 of 2012, where they woke up together and they saw that sunrise over the river. And they went, oh my God, it's incredible. But they also realized that this is never going to happen again. And they spend the next part of the book going through their life's journey of how they're going through making you know their life better, making life changes that they're making. And then kind of towards the end of the book where it kind of takes them, you know, there's there's potentials of something happening. But, you know, that's why you have to read the book to see how it ends. But the nice thing about the story is it does talk about they both go through their trials. They both go to tribulations. But at the same time, the book also draws attention to a lot of real world subject matters of Vietnam, child slavery you know, human abduction, um, you know, drug trafficking, hacking, and cyber attacks that go on. A lot of those are covered in the book as well. So there's a lot of characters that come in and out of the book to kind of make the storyline interesting. But it is very much of a historical fictional with a romance, you know, type of spin. It seems that faith plays a big part in this book. Yes. Tell me about that. It very much does. Because in the end of the book, when Jack has to make decisions on where he wants to really go with his life and what choices he's making... He knew that he did make the decision to go there, and he, he realized it was important. But I, I have a chance to talk to a lot of people that read this book early, and a lot of them come back and say, you know, when I was 14, I should have done this. When I was 65, I should have done this. Or when I was 38, I should have taken this job. And the world is filled with people that wish they could have done things, but they didn't. And a lot of them felt inspired by reading the story going, wow, he really did it. You know, he put it all on the line and he did it, but he also knew that he had to do it. And I think one of the good things about this story is, you don't. a lot of people are afraid to make that journey because they're afraid what will happen. Well, what happens if you don't make that journey, right? So fate was in his hands going, okay, I'm going to do this. Whatever happens, happens. But the good thing is he ran into a lot of good people in the story. Obviously, Forrest Adams, the priest, and a few other people that had to come into his life for a reason. 
to give him direction, to give him guidance, to give him some, hey man, <laughs> you gotta go do this, right? But it, but he needed that in order to be better than what he was. And, and that really was what made the journey worthwhile. So fascinating, so fascinating. Let me ask you a question outside of this for a second. What do you do besides write books? <laughs> so I've been in, I've been a cybersecurity specialist for 27 years. So I a lot I obviously deal with a lot of hacking and things over the years. I've been in IT for since the late 70s, early 80s, um, and absolutely love it. I grew up with technology as well. My father was in technology as well, so uh, I've always been in that space. But yeah, for the vast majority of my professional career, I've been in the cybersecurity field. Oh, what a field today, right? Yes. <laughs> okay, let's move on. So uh, you, we have alluded to the fact there will be a sequel to the book, and we'll talk about that too. Yes. But you've also decided to do something really special with the proceeds of the book. And yes. so I'd like you to talk to my listeners about that, because this is the time of year for charitable gift giving, and yes. it makes a difference. And this book will also make a difference. Well, not only the book, but the, the charity is called Helmets for Kids in Vietnam, um, which is a, a charity that is run by globalgiving.org. Um, and it basically provides safe helmets for children. They actually manufacture the helmets in Vietnam um, and they provide them to children for safety. Now, one of the really interesting things about Helmets for Kids in Vietnam, it was actually started in 2000 by President Bill Clinton. When he actually made the trip to Vietnam in 2000, he was the first U.S. president to go to the country since the end of the war. And that was one of his initiatives he had was while he was there going, you know what, we need to do something for the kids because, you know, he witnessed himself. Yes, the kids are cycling next to the cars or they're going up against 8 million scooters. No one's protecting. So he helped kind of start the program. And in 2018, the uh, icon of the year named yesterday, Michelle Yeoh, is actually the global ambassador for Helmets for Kids in Vietnam as well. So I had the privilege that they actually shipped me a helmet uh, with, with my logo on it. My logo, my yeah, I don't action. have a picture of the helmet. Oh, I want you to send me one. Absolutely. So okay. uh, this is actually made there. So they sent me one as well with my little, obviously my logo on it as well. Yes. But not only does the book proceeds, but I started a coffee company called PsychoWriter3Expresso.com. And so the proceeds of the coffee and the books, and of course, the coffee mug with the logo on it as well, uh, all of these proceeds go to support the program. So the book came out on uh, November 30th. Um, it's available for purchase today. The coffee site is a you know cyclewriter3expresso.com. And so the proceeds of all three of those are going to support Helmets for Kids. But it, it's, it's been a wonderful program. Uh, to date, I've donated close to $2,000 of coffee sales um, to help. And it's provided almost 200 helmets to kids in Vietnam so far. So we will definitely list the... Uh websites and the links to both the helmet program and the coffee program. Are you making espresso? Yes. Espresso, greens, whole bean, everything. I have multiple, multiple variety packages up there for people to order, but all the proceeds go to help support helmets for kids. That's awesome. That's just awesome. So real quickly, before we wrap up, uh, when will you, I mean, I've already seen a cover for the next book. So you must have it either in editing or publishing now. Editing. So uh, the cover is still classified, but it, the, the name of the book is called Codename Dragon Vault is the next book. It'll be coming out July of 2023. It does carry forward Jack Kindle and Forrest and a few of the others. But in the end of the book, I introduce an incredibly, incredibly challenging and very corrupt individual by the name of Travis Jones. 
he becomes the ultimate scumbag in book two. So it does get more into kind of global hacking. It gets into, you know, how Jack now needs to kind of become this global troubleshooter to help prevent, you know, some real tragic events from happening. So it does carry the story forward a little bit. There's some new people being added. There's some new love interest being added as well. So I won't give away too much of that, but it is definitely a, a sequel to it. Their book three, which will be out in November of next year, is called Shores of Okinawa. That also is a continuum of the Jack Kendall series as well. So let's see. I know my dad used to read, was it Sam Spade? Yes. Back in the day, this sounds like this is the new Sam Spade guy. So cool. A little bit is, but I have to tell you that I'm very influenced by Tom Clancy. Yeah, sure. Uh, and, and obviously, um, you know, one of the questions that comes up in every podcast is they always give me this kind of blank look and say, how much of the book is real? How much is it you? How much is it that? And I kind of always kind of smirk and say, well, first of all, it is a historical fictional based on inspired by true events. So there is some there is some nonfiction um, when you get into the, the piece of the book around the Catholic nuns and going to define them. You know, that was extremely real. Um, the water company investment was very real about the children that, you know, had some awful teeth that were drinking sugar. That was a pretty real scene. But there's a lot of fiction to the book. And what really inspired me the way I took this as a writing style was when I first read The Hunt for Red October. And I thought, what detail? I mean, Clancy was everything down to the submarines, to the technology, to the boats, to the Navy, how they did things. And yet, was there really a submarine that you know, went to the bottom of the Atlantic. So I think when you look at nonfiction fiction blends, I, I really was inspired by how Tom Clancy wrote. And I kind of wrote this book in the same context where there was some nonfiction storylines. But in all truth, I made it more fictional. So A, wouldn't be boring. <laughs> and B, it'd be fun to read. So yeah, yeah it, it definitely has a very playful sense of, of fiction to it as well. Yeah, I love historical fiction. That is, you know, if I'm not going to read an autobiography or biography or something like that, that's where I go. Well, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. We've been talking with Patrick Greenwood. His book is Sunrise in Saigon. You can get it right now. It came out just November 30th. So it's a week old. It's a baby book. Yes. Uh, it's an interesting novel. We don't have a lot of novels in our space in cycling. So I really appreciate you writing it. And then uh, we'll give them all the information to continue on with uh, with the story. Thank you thank so you. much for talking with me and for writing this book. Absolutely. Thank you, Don. It's very nice to meet you. And thank you for being a fellow cyclist as well. Thanks. Have a good holiday. You do as well. Thank you. Okay. My thanks to Patrick Greenwood for joining me today. You can find a copy of Sunrise in Saigon from any of your favorite book purveyors, and we'll be watching for that sequel next summer. You can also find out more about Patrick's espresso company at CycleWriter3, that's the number three, espresso.com. Next time on The Outspoken Cyclist, I have a lengthy conversation with Wayne Stetna arguably from one of the U.S.'s royal cycling families, Wayne is the eldest of four Stetina boys, all stellar cyclists. Wayne has probably forgotten more than most of us will ever know about bike racing, modern bicycles and equipment, and how things work in the bike world. Thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app and rate the show. Every episode is also available for download on our website, OutspokenCyclist.com, accompanied by photos, notes, and links. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Please stay safe, stay well, 
Happy New Year, and remember, there is always time for a ride. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We welcome your thoughts and contributions on our Facebook page, or visit OutspokenCyclist.com to leave a comment on any episode. We will be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news from the world of cycling. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and you'll never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland, a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.